Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. Today we are talking about all things sports medicine and our guest today is a Dr Johnny Gordon who is a consultant in emergency medicine in Glasgow and also team doctor for the Scottish men's football team. And we normally like to keep these podcasts around about 25 to 30 minutes but there was actually so much good stuff in this that we found it hard to cut it down. So it comes in at around about 50 minutes but I think there's a lot for you to enjoy. So let's just jump right in. Hello and welcome to the, the <laughs> to the Simongo's podcast. Sorry, I'm getting put off by my guest here. Um, we, we've got a very special guest here today. We're going to talk all about sports medicine and kind of relevant topics around sports medicine and hopefully some stuff that will have some relevance for emergency physicians, of which our guest is also a consultant in, in emergency medicine too. So, um, Dr. Gordon, would you mind if I just asked you to introduce yourself and say how you are involved in sports medicine, please? Absolutely, and thanks very much for the invite. Uh, so I'm Johnny Gordon. I am primarily an emergency medicine consultant here in Glasgow at the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, but I do have a, a an interest in sports medicine. It's something I've been involved in for the last 17 years or so. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a, a thank you for the opportunity to come and chat about how those two things work together. And your main involvement in sports medicine is what? Uh, so I work with the Scottish FA primarily uh, as a team doctor with the men's football team, uh, but I also work with UEFA as an advisor to them on emergency medicine matters, um, so things that pertain to trauma uh, or any type of emergency uh, for the players. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. So how did you get into sports medicine? When and how? Uh, well, uh, probably 2001 is when I started my master's, so um, my career path was uh, emergency medicine, but and at that time there wasn't really an opportunity to dual uh, a credit or to train in sports medicine, which there is now. Um, so really at that time it was a case of doing either the master's or doing a diploma in sports and exercise medicine. Uh, so I went with the master's as a part-time uh, degree and uh, through that started to get involved with uh, some of the younger teams with the Scottish Football Association. Um, and that was a great, you know, it was a great starting point to sort of learn from quite a small team environment, backroom staff team, uh, to progress through to working with the men's team, which is, uh, and at all levels, it's a privilege to work in that type of environment. Very different from emergency medicine. Is that still an option to do a master's or is it generally all dual accreditation now? No, 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 absolutely. Um, so a lot of people will do some sports and exercise medicine as part of, as a kind of interest to them rather than something that is formally, uh, you know, dual accreditation. Uh, so you can do the master's, which can either be done, I did mine at Glasgow University, it was fantastic. Prof Ellis was the uh, was the lead then and John McLean is the lead now um, but you can do it as a correspondence and online type of uh, masters as well the diploma uh, sports and exercise medicine is another another option um, and if you want to get formally trained in a CCT then uh, you can apply for that now there were a number of SEM posts full training posts uh, around the time of the, the, the Olympic Games in London uh, less so now so not, none that I'm aware of that are in Scotland at the moment as training posts but there are still some down south. So there's opportunities to do things in different ways. And what do you think are the benefits for you of having a dual role? Yeah, so uh, as I say, I'm, I'm I'm not dual accredited. I didn't go through the formal training process because it wasn't there at that time. Um, but I think emergency medicine is a tough gig. It really is a tough gig. So having something that allows you to practice medicine in a different way uh, or something that you can focus on in a different way that maybe allows you to apply some of the knowledge you, you pick up in emergency medicine that you have, but in a different environment, it's a nice thing to do. It kind of allows you to 
you know, to still be working, but working in a different environment, different challenge. Uh, a lot of similarities uh, in many ways, but uh, a lot of things are different as well. So, And less full-time clinical A&E work is no bad thing, is it? <laughs> I, th- I think so. I think and if, if, uh, if I was giving advice to anybody, I think it would be to say that... that from my perspective, I think it's probably quite a healthy thing to have something else that you can go to. Uh, and that could be, you know, any number of different things. It doesn't even need to be medicine. But I think you need to have something else outside emergency medicine because it's such, it's such a, 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 a hard environment to work in full stop all of the time. Yeah. It is, yeah. And we've yeah. interviewed quite a few people now in the podcast who are kind of have dual kind of interests. And, and that seems to be the recurring theme. It's yeah. just, it, it helps them enjoy their emergency yeah. job better I think yeah. is, would you agree with that? Yeah it's nice to take time away but also when you come back um, you know it, it's nice to feel that you want to be back as well um, so every day is a bit more of a challenge than um, than just doing the same thing over and over again. So what, uh, what would you say are the main parallels with emergency medicine? Uh, there's a lot of team working um, you're when you work in sport, or certainly the sport that I've worked in, and this probably won't hold true across the board, but it is primarily football that I've that I've been involved in. Have uh, been involved in some other sports, but but primarily football. Um, so you are part of a backroom staff. Um, you're part of a group of um, clinicians. There may be sports scientists. There'll be always be physiotherapists. There'll be masseurs. Um, and it's similar in the same way that we would work in an emergency department and have. You know, nursing staff that there you'd have ENPs, you'll have auxiliaries, you'll have junior staff, more senior staff. Um, and that works quite well. So it's very similar in that kind of way. You know, it's important that you don't overstretch yourself into an environment that you don't need to because other people are there and they can do it better. And that's the same at, you know, whether it's a hospital environment or sports. Um, and being part of that team actually confers lots of learning opportunities as well. But uh, we, when you're used to working with people that you know well, that you can trust and things just tend to happen without you really, you know, having to focus too much on making them happen. So the physios will take quite a lead in a lot of the things that happen with, you know, the players in terms of their assessments, especially more the chronic type problems. The, obviously for the rehabilitation, the more medical or trauma type things that are acute, we would tend to get involved in as doctors. Um, the masseurs will work in the room next to us. And as long as everybody's communicating properly, things will work well. And that's, you know, those are definitely the parallels that, uh, between the two. And what would be the main differences, do you think? It's a different type of pressure. In emergency medicine, the moment you walk through the door, you're under pressure to, to work pretty much until the end of your shift and beyond. Um a lot of the time in sport, there's not that intense pressure and it's very enjoyable. Um, the pressure comes when the match starts or when training starts and there's a potential for an injury, there's a potential for something to go wrong. Um, the communication side of things is is equally important in both because every mistake that I've probably ever made has at least had a communication element to it. Um, so as I say, the pressure becomes quite heightened at certain times in sport, but for the vast majority of it, it's actually more of an enjoyable thing to do. So, and it might be a silly question, uh, but so what is your exact clinical role? Is it purely looking after injury, or do you also serve like a, a GP? Nearly, are you looking after the physical kind of general physical health of the players, or, or how does it work? It can do. Um, one of the things about international football is that, and it's a good it's a, a good point to make at this point, I think, is that we are effectively loaned the players and not our players. Whereas when you work at a club, um, then those are the players who are actually you know part of that club. They're really um, you know they're 
it's up to us to look after them while they're away for a short period of time and you've got to return them in good health. Um, so I, I think that is a distinction between club sport and international sport that's actually really quite important. And your role will be whatever the players need it to be of you. Um, so they will ask us quite commonly, you know, could you have a look at my throat? Could you have a look at um, you know my ears? Anything that's so, anything that's starting to be sore from a medical perspective, and clearly from an injury point of view, we would make joint assessments with the physios in that type of situation. Um, I, I would defer to the physios that I have worked with because I know how well how good they are and what you know what their capabilities are. Would sports medicine doctors generally come from an A and E slash GP background? Would that be typical? Yeah, GP background probably more so. I would say from my experience, and when I worked with Scotland, John. Uh, John McLean's a, a GP as well as a sports physician so we've got different skill sets we've got different strengths which is great um, and I think you know if you're working in a day-to-day environment I did some work with Celtic and that was that was great but uh, you kind of need to be a GP 90 plus percent of the time so I think if I was a professional athlete most of the time that I had an issue I'd probably want a GP with that skill set to sort my problems for me Um if something catastrophic happens and I would probably want somebody with a skill set that I have from emergency medicine to, to help in that environment. So working with somebody or myself and John working together is great. We've worked together for years so we know each other, but we also know when to say, you know, you'd be better seeing him or vice versa. So if you don't mind, I was going to ask you a slightly personal question um, on your finances. Um <laughs> Well, just related to your work. Um, so I, I was just curious for the listener, um, how does it work? Who who pays your wage? Is it is it completely separate from the NHS? And how do you make the two work together if you have long stints away on, on you know, on, on location for, for big matches? How does that work, you know, with your shift patterns in, in A&E? Um, so it's, it's completely separate and what you do in your own time is what you do in your own time. So the contract that you would have would be with the employing agency, whether that's the football club or whether that's the, you know, the SFA. Um, what you need to have is a very understanding partner wife girlfriend <laughs> because should we uh, give it should we do a shout out <laughs> go julie yeah um and and the the girls as well because you are away from home for potentially periods of time i have to say uh, in the 17 years that i've been doing it we haven't actually managed to qualify for a major tournament but we will and then that will bring its own challenges because that'll be a considerable period of time um, but it's normally annual leave that you take and thereafter you know you you would put in an invoice to whoever it is that you're working for but the one thing i would say is it, it's not always the best uh, remunerated uh, way to earn extra money if that's what you're looking for there's not a lot of money that follows um, the rules that you have and you have to bear that in mind um, because not only will you perhaps not earn as much as you think you would want to be earning in that type of environment but you also need to increase your indemnity to cover you for it otherwise you'll be exceptionally exposed. And So do it for the love of it. You do need to do it for the love of it and yeah as you gain uh, or as you go up the ladder in terms of the different clubs that you might work for then yes these things will change and the, the paid does get better as you're looking after more senior um, types of athletes but it doesn't always work that way and I think there are a lot of people that do this for the for the love of the the game yeah okay so just in case there's someone um, listening who thinks I'd really love to get into that but I have absolutely no idea how to what would be your recommendation how does someone go about getting involved in sports medicine um I think 
the easiest way to do this or to think about it is if you're going to work with athletes, then you should probably show a degree of commitment to wanting to be able to do the best for them. And that implies that you really need to go looking for qualifications to back up your, you know, your input into their care. Um, so I would recommend that if you're wanting to do that, that you do the diploma or you do a master's in sports and exercise medicine. Those are the things I would suggest. Whilst you're building that up, because it took me four years to do the master's, I was working you know, at the same time, um, I was trying to do my exit exam, so there was a lot going on. So I, you can do it full time or you can do it over four years. Um, and it took me that period of time to do it. Um, out with that, there are other courses that you can do, pitch side courses. So at Hamden, if you wanted to um, get some experience, we run a two-day course called Sport Promote Course, um, which focuses on management of medical trauma emergencies, starting to incorporate human factors. It's very much hands-on rather than lecture-type based, um, and it works very well because it covers a whole gamut of different things. And we with uh, UEFA support uh, took that course to them showed them what we thought was important and uh, it's now run through at Europe which is a great thing because it helps to improve the standards of care across you know lots of different countries where perhaps that wasn't wasn't always there um, and accessible for the athletes so do something like that there's lots of other courses you can do pitch side courses but uh, you need to have that as a minimum but I think if you're wanting to work with an athlete you really should be signing up for something a bit you know a bit more robust in a qualification and you mentioned the dual accreditation under what um banner does does sports medicine fall is it its own college is it its own so it's a faculty of sports and exercise medicine um and you tend to go in or you would tend to go into that as a an st3 a st3 level so you could finish your gp training you could finish accs and then apply for an st3 number in sports and exercise medicine and that accreditation is given uh, through the faculty of sports and exercise medicine and we can put a, a link to the, to yeah, in the yeah, show yeah. notes to all of those different yeah. things yeah. um is is there a minimum kind of degree of medical experience you would recommend before you would go into kind of sports medicine or before you would start working with with elite athletes um, or is it more yeah, just dependent uh, on the person? I think it probably is dependent on the person, um, uh, and by that I mean you you may have done an undergraduate degree in, uh, in in sports science and have some degree of you know team working abilities because it's not just always about the medicine; it's about being aware of how the coaches may want you to behave, about how you integrate as part of a team. Uh, so it's not always just about the medicine; it's about having that familiarity, you know, going into any environment and potentially making a situation. Worse because your communication isn't as good as it could be because you're not aware of how things function. It's a, it's a bit of a risk. So. Do you think there are other types of courses you should do that would really benefit you in sports medicine, like what you just said, like human factors type courses? Is there other things that that would bring uh, uh, something to to that sort of? Um what am I trying to say, Jamie? Yeah, <laughs> I think you know what I'm trying to say. I do know what you're trying to say. And I think, uh, I mean, we've talked about human factors before and I think we're both, you know, I think it's increasingly such an important aspect about how to be a good doctor. And this is about being a good doctor. It's just a different environment to practice your medicine. So, yeah, I, I, I think anything that, that develops your ability to have awareness of your limitations, your awareness of how you communicate, your awareness of how um, you function clinically because you're able to cope with different things happening to you isn't always just going to be about the clinical knowledge so yeah it's the same things that would make you a good doctor in a hospital environment should help you in, in that sports environment it's just a slightly different subset of you know how you communicate with with other people and just to clarify we, we chatted a wee bit off the air there um about what would be the natural progression of you know moving up the food chain let's say in sports yeah. medicine so i think you what you'd said is you would recommend 
completing your qualifications in sports medicine before working in a role is that fair to say and then yeah. starting off at kind of more junior level and working up is that kind of the yeah, traditional route? yeah probably is um i don't think you necessarily need to complete it because it may take as i say it may take you three four years to actually complete some of the you know the longer courses to do uh, but i think you need to have at least started them and developed a degree of confidence in your limitations as much as anything else so that you can say I actually don't know the answer to that question or I don't really know what I, ne- I need to do next so that you're not left exposed. And that's always my, my, a wee bit of a concern about people who are, are doctors that are very junior and their kind of clinical um, seniority who get put into a situation where they find it difficult to, to be able to act as an advocate for the patient who's a player. So the player is a patient and you know that conflict which can arise can be quite difficult to manage. Okay, so um, I was interested to, to kind of ask you what you think you've most learned from sports medicine that you've transferred into your kind of clinical emergency medicine practice. So I was going to ask you, could you give me one example of a clinical thing and maybe um, one example of a non-clinical thing that you've learned in sports medicine? Sure, sure. Um, so I think clinically, um, I would say it's about treating the patient so not necessarily treating an x-ray, but treating a patient. And I think we can get into a habit whereby um, we start in an emergency department to order, and order lots of tests before we've even seen the patient. So bloods get done, x-rays get done before we've even seen the patient. Uh, and that leads to us forgetting to focus on doing the simple things well, which is to take a history, to examine the patient and then reach a conclusion. And I think that's actually a really important premise in general because I think it affects... All of the patients potentially that come through. Um, but one of the injuries that I think X-rays are particularly commonly done and then the focus is slightly lost if the X-ray is normal are, are ankle injuries. So ankle injuries are a very, very common presentation to an emergency department. It's not that uncommon to have them triage X-rayed to try and speed up the process. And that takes us into this back to front process where You'll see a doctor looking at an x-ray before they go to see the patient. They've perhaps reached a conclusion from looking at the x-ray that there's nothing broken and therefore there's nothing wrong. And, you know, in many cases, nothing could be further from the truth. So I think being aware that we mustn't lose sight of doing the simple things is really important. Ankle injuries, you know, simple sprains, are they important? Well, they're not always quite as clear cut as we would see because our injuries that we see are very hyperacute. In most situations, things can be difficult to differentiate uh, and you've got to go in the mechanism. So take the history from the patient, focus on the mechanism, and that will likely lead you to, um, to be able to make your diagnosis. In an ankle, syndesmosis injuries are one of the things we don't want to miss. So it's worthwhile bearing in mind. And a good thing to read about if you don't know about syndesmosis injuries, having a, have, a, have a wee read about them. Um, they are classically caused by a fixed plant a fixed foot that's dorsiflexed and then uh, externally rotated and the injury occurs as a high ankle sprain rather than just a simple lateral ligament sprain and the clinical findings initially can be quite difficult to tease out from a lateral ligament sprain um, but the management's a wee bit different so it's something to, to, to think about. And what would be any little clinical tips on how to diagnose? Yeah. A syn- so the X-rays are typically normal. Would that be fair? You know, yeah. not always, but but yeah. So the incidence of a syndesmosis injury is about one percent um, for ankle sprains, but it rises ten 
13%, depends what studies you look at, if there's an associated fracture of the ankle. So, you know, perhaps a 1 in 10 instance of an ankle fracture being associated with a syndesmosis injury as well is quite a high incidence. Um, so again, the x-rays may not give you the full clinical picture. But syndesmosis, syndesmosis is um, a... a comprised of lots of different anatomical structures that I think we perhaps don't tend to focus on particularly. We're very good at looking at the ATFL, the um, you know the other lateral ligament, uh, ligaments that can make up the, the lateral complex and the deltoid ligaments. So we think about these things, but you've also got the tibiofibular ligaments as well. You've got the interosseous membrane, you've got transverse ligaments. All of these things kind of comprise the syndesmosis. And when there's a disruption there, then that will lead much more likely to an instability than just a simple lateral ligament sprain. And any little clinical tests that would kind couple, of raise the suspicion? A couple of things you can do, but again, uh, so certainly I would I would encourage everybody always examine the joint above and below, but start when you're working at the knee and you're thinking about the fibular head, which is one of the reasons we look at the knee when we've got an ankle injury, is to work your way down and to squeeze or to compress the, the, the tibia and the fibula together um, as you're going down to see if that elicits pain further down, further distally down to where the syndesmosis injury would be. So that's that's a relatively good test. Um, it doesn't exclude a syndesmosis injury, but if it's painful when you're doing that, then it's certainly something to consider uh, and it raises a suggestion of it. You can reproduce the way that they've, they've sustained that mechanism of injury as well. So you can dorsiflex the ankle and externally rotate it. And if that causes pain, then you know that's again something to to point you towards a syndesmosis injury. And just remind me, why is it important not to miss it? What, what What's the main differences in treatment? Certainly in, an, in elite athletes, um, it's it's potentially a career-threatening uh, injury, depending on the extent of the damage. Um, and for our non-elite athletes, there's a degree of morbidity associated with these types of injuries that won't be there with a simple ankle sprain. And your initial management's most likely to be non-weight-bearing perhaps with an operative fixation if it's if if further imaging shows that there's a disruption that we benefit from from fixation. Uh, so rather than us say we you know we, we like to get patients to weight bear as soon as possible. In a syndesmosis injury you probably want a period of time where you want to where you want to rest that joint. Which is why I would be saying to the juniors and our certainly our, our local advice is if you've got a inverted commas ankle sprain and the patient can't weight bear, they need to come back to a clinic somebody needs to see them um, so they would tend to come back to a ED clinic at the QE they may have access to other types of clinics depending on their background or you know and in the acute phase what would you put them in would you would you plaster them or would you just no I, th- I, th- I think it would still a walking boot's fine oh is that a okay walking boot's so you fine. could walk yeah. in a walking boot yeah okay. because remember a walking boot doesn't mean that you're putting all your 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 weight through it another another kind of um, thing to, to bear in mind Every single treatment, every treatment that we ever give to a patient has got a side effect. There is no treatment you can give to somebody that will not have a downside. Um, so that includes simple things like crutches or boots as well. Um, but if they're using, what we would, in these patients will need a set of crutches as well. But, you know, we don't want to create further harm. Um, so, yeah, they can put their, they, they can toe touch and they can, um, you know, they, they're allowed to put a little bit of weight through it. But ideally what we're saying is that's just to keep your balance. Um it's not for you to put your full weight through, which is something that we probably would do if we were, you know, not not concerned about it being more significant. And if you were considering a, a syndesmosis injury, what about follow up? Would that be referred to orthopedics or yeah. bring back to a clinic if you if you provide such a service? Yeah, lo- lo- local or follow up as per your local guidelines, but there does need to be a review there. And in most cases, it would require further imaging. In which case, yeah, referring on to a, a virtual fracture clinic would be appropriate. If you're just not sure and you want a second opinion, then we. 
have clinics at the, the QE and also at the Vic as well that we go to where we'll see quite a lot of patients of this type of ilk. Um, and again, having a good relationship with a lot of the orthopaedic colleagues helps because you can, you know you know who the foot and ankle guys are. You can say that you're concerned about X, Y, or Z, and you know they may organise a scan on the basis of what you think and then see the patient for you. So uh, yeah, whatever works locally for you, but it's about making sure that you consider it. So don't, I'm not suggesting that everybody should now be referring every simple ankle sprain to yeah. orthopaedics. Uh, I'll, I'll be uh, fairly person non gratis yeah, <laughs> if yeah. that's the case. But it's just something to consider. There's always something else to consider, you know, when you come up with an injury. It's always, you know, in the back of your mind, what's the worst case scenario? What are the things that I could be missing? Um and the lower limb, um, you know, most of the time we're fine. We don't run into problems, but you can. So treat the patient, not the x-ray. Always treat the patient, yeah. You know, take the history, examine. It, it's really, really important, and it's something that's actually getting a wee bit lost uh, in translation, I think. So I would imagine you've probably gained quite a bit of non-clinical experience. We, we touched on a bit of human factors, and, and I imagine, and this could be completely ignorant uh, point of view, but... I would imagine you would need a lot of human factors understanding or you would gain a lot of um, human factors kind of experience in sports medicine. Would that be fair? And have you learned a lot in terms of teamwork and leadership? What what have you gained from that kind of aspect of your career that's been helpful? It's a good question. And I think the sporting environment does give you that insight into how other people will function as leaders, whether that's players, as in as leaders um, trying to get the best out of their team or of the manager, the coach and the dynamics between the different types of coaches that you might have achieving that as well. So you see people man managing and team managing in different ways. And again, you learn as much from people doing things perhaps in a way that doesn't necessarily have a positive outcome uh, as you do from folk that do. But I've been very lucky that you know the the folk that I've seen have have all been ex- exceptional in terms of how they communicate with the players that they've you know that they've been looking after. Some have been more tactically focused than others who just want to bring out the best, bring out the confidence in uh, the players. And it's a wee bit like um, I suppose how our departments function as well because. Emergency medicine can be a confidence game as well. You only need to make one mistake and your confidence goes down about, you know, you start to over-investigate things in a way that isn't actually helpful either and it takes a bit of time to, uh, to to perhaps regain your confidence. And I think that's a normal thing. It can be quite a difficult thing to admit as a consultant to say, do you know, I feel a bit bad because I, I, I've now started to act in a way that I wasn't before because something happened and I didn't communicate something or there was a problem. Um, and that's why having a good team around you of, good, of colleagues to say, you know, either come to you because they've got issues or vice versa. Um, but those coaches and the players as well, that dynamic is, uh, is, is quite insightful in how that is actually, the parallels are there with, uh, you know, bringing out the best in your, your work colleagues as well. And I've heard, I don't know what it's like in the Scottish FA that you work in, but I've heard some teams, they try to instill this culture of equal, there's no hierarchy. It's not like mm-hmm. the players are all big headed and they're better than all the backroom staff. It's all very much a kind of single level kind of family affair. Is that fair to say? Does that help? I think it's, I think it's a wee bit more like that than it maybe used to be. Um, but there is still a hierarchy. You've got a captain who's there of the team and, and the managers will tend to do things in the same way. Um, certainly the good managers where at half time, the players will all come in, the management staff will come in. We'll make sure that there's no injuries that have happened that we're not aware of that need to be treated at that point. 
and the uh, management staff will go off to another room to discuss how they're going to deal with what they've seen in the first 45 minutes. And at that point, the captain of the team will normally have a chat, I say a chat, with the rest of the players. Depending on how they're doing. Depending on how they're doing. <laughs> now, they may be, you know, the, and how they conduct that's really, really important. Because again, talk about confidence game and football's renowned for that. Um, so if you've got somebody who's struggling, the captain's going to have to help them with that rather than a blame game. And I think that's probably perhaps what used to happen was it was just a blame game from hierarchy all the way down, shouting at people, trying to bring out the best in them. And that clearly doesn't work. So I think I don't, I don't, I'm not aware that uh, that's training that these guys get. Certainly, I don't think the players get it. Maybe the managers do. But there's certainly been an evolution of them. They let the players sort it out themselves and then they come back five minutes later to say, this is what I think is going to happen uh, to make this better for us. And again, to be fair, they'll tend to ask the players for feedback as well. They'll say, what went wrong? Why are you struggling in this position? What's going on that we need to do? Do we need to double up on a player? Do we not need to? Do we need to change the format? So the good managers will perhaps ask the players, what do you think? And then say, this is what I've seen and this is what I think we should then do. And that's, that, that is human factors there. It's not the older school of coming in and just shouting at each other. And so you must have seen some great examples of amazing <laughs> leadership and then others that are not so good. Is, is there any other little qualities to leadership that, that you've maybe um, picked up in, in sports medicine that you've maybe brought into your own practice? Things that you've witnessed. Yeah. And like that, you know, listening and, and letting them, you know, but any other little qualities. You mentioned one about Jim Fleeting. And yeah, Jim. Do you want to mention that? Yeah, Jim, Jim's a great guy. Jim's uh, an incredible uh, chap. So he's technical director um, at the SFA and has had a great impact, I think, on the younger players that have come through because he's quite, he's, a, he's an inspirational guy. But he, his philosophy isn't just about making them good footballers. His philosophy is very much about making them good people. So the, the you know the footballers that are in his care or under his uh, under his leadership, um, he focused as much on making sure that they were as polite, well mannered um, as 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 they could be. Because why wouldn't you? But he would make a specific you know example of that. Um, and I think when you're young and you're given a, perhaps a degree of wealth at a young age, as a foot, as footballers can be, um, you can get carried away with that. And Jim is very, very good at being able to bring back the qualities of saying, you know, it's nice to be nice. There's absolutely no reason why, if you're given this privilege, that you would abuse it. So always made good examples about saying, you know, be, being respectful to everybody, whether it was a porter or a, you know, a cleaning um, lady in the hotel or a doctor or a physio or any of the other staff. It was the same level of respect that was conferred. And I think that stuck with a lot of the players uh, and you would see them coming through. And unfortunately, professional sport is quite a fickle thing. So a lot of the guys that would work when I started with the under 21s, wouldn't go on to have successful money-making careers in football. The vast majority won't. You know, that's just the nature of the game. They, they would fade out. Um, but he would, I think, try and, I think he would bring home a wee bit of a reality check to them rather than just pandering to them in any way. And that, that was just great and to what, see. And what, what do you think that kind of did for the atmosphere and, and the, the what, what, what benefits does that bring? Having a, you know, mutual respect and, you know, kindness and, and just being, being good people. Is that... Does that help attract better staff? Does that just make it more enjoyable place to work? Does that improve the quality that's delivered? Is, is it good for the, the whole team, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It, it, the, for me, I don't think it really matters the job you do. It matters the people that you do it with. And if you work in an environment where people are disrespectful to you 
on a regular basis, then that's just not something that I would ever want to put myself into. So I wouldn't if that was the case. Um, but knowing that people take pride, you know, at that professional level of saying this is equally important for you to behave in an appropriate professional manner that's kind and respectful to other people. And as a result of that, we will work together as a team better, did foster that type of, you know, that type of positive culture that allowed I think the players to play better but also to leave thinking well wait a minute okay well maybe maybe he's got a point there maybe I need to have a think about how I come across intentionally or otherwise um, and that wouldn't apply for all players as um, unfortunately you know people are different in different ways and they don't all buy into it but it was the vast majority but Jim made it a very specific thing where other you know people perhaps wouldn't have what has been your best moment in the job? Or maybe not your best moment, but what, what, if, if I just ask you that, what, what's the first thing that jumps into your head? What's the most memorable moment then, let's say? A, probably probably the Commonwealth Games. Actually, that was a big success for the city. It was a big success for the country. It was a big success, I think, for emergency meds. And I think, you know, if I'm being as focused on that, um, because I think we, we provided a really good level of care that perhaps hadn't been seen before. And I think the... The way that we all worked together in the polyclinic, which was one of the things I had responsibility for during the games, was phenomenal. To be able to see the athletes come in, to be impressed by the setup that we had, but also to know there was a backup of resource, um, you know, that was there for them should it be should it be needed, was fantastic. You know, everybody felt very comfortable that we could deliver a fantastic games. I think that's what happened, and the medical care I think was provided across all of the different facets uh, at the venues as well as the polyclinic. And the hotels was absolutely superb. So to have been a part of that was, you know, that that's gives me immense. And being responsible for it, well, being responsible, Extra pride. yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, seeing it come together and and watching it and watching again the way that people worked together because the ED guys took time to work with the physios if that wasn't something they'd really had chance to do before, and again it was really joined up. It worked. It worked well, and it was a great reflection for the for the city. Brilliant. I'm going to ask you to talk about one other moment that I know about. That, okay. that was probably another memorable moment. It was actually your wedding day. Do you, uh, mind, yeah. do you mind just telling me that story as I, well? Yeah. Okay. That's uh, yeah. So a year after I started working with the Scotland under 21s, Rainer Bonoff was the manager um, of the 21s at that point, and um, it was a Rainer. And, and for those that don't know him, who is he? So Rainer Bonoff was a World Cup winner. Um, with West Germany and uh, just a, a fantastically charismatic guy so he was brought in with the 21s when Bertie Votes was the manager of the big team so I really only just started with the 21s a year or so um, before I got married and one tip tip to anybody else who does want to get involved in sport don't book your wedding day at the time when there are international <laughs> fixtures because it's the same time every year so every year I have to, to say goodbye to the family and so uh, have a winter off. wedding have yeah just uh, look at the fixtures whatever sport you're interested in make sure you don't get a conflict um anyway I couldn't make the game that the under 21s were playing which was against Germany it was a big game for Rainer um and they had a warm-up game on the day of our uh, of our wedding which was against Morton so I didn't know this but uh, they changed the the timing of that game, it was supposed to be in the afternoon, which was when we were getting married. They played the game in the morning. Rainer put all the players on the bus, uh, made them <laughs> made them stop off at Largs, get uh, confetti. And when we came out of the church at Glasgow University, there was a guard of honour of all of these players and they were all, they all turned out to be fairly high profile players. Wow. Um, which was just, a, it was just something that wasn't needed. It, it, you know, it was just such a kind gesture to do 
for guys that had, you know, I'd, I'd, and did you know about it in advance? No, I had no idea at all. So you came out just expecting. Well, to be fair, I came out and uh, didn't then see my wife for the next uh, two hours because she seemed more. more so she was less enthused well, she was or impressed with the under twenty one. She'd yeah. never really met them before, but that it, what it what it actually did was it allowed me a period of grace and goodwill um, for Julie to be able to say, "Well, do you know something? I can see why you are." Yeah. You know, why you love doing that. The camera. These are really nice guys. You know, they're all, um, you know, you work together well. um, And yeah, okay, I I can see what's going on. And that that looks as if you're having a good time. And what what did that say to you about leadership? Well, again, it was it was it was above and beyond the call of uh, Farina to do that. But um, again, it's difficult sometimes getting time off work. It's difficult, you know, to find the annual or to have annual leave to allow you to do that. but it showed that he was he was he wasn't making a statement to anybody, but what his actions demonstrated to the players were we're all part of a team. And, you know, it was a very fixed backroom staff, very limited numbers, um uh, only six of us in total. And I think he was pretty much saying everybody's everybody who's part of that team is important and therefore we will celebrate each other's successes, you know, and work together through our through our failures. Now I will say, because I can't claim credit for it, but they did go on and beat Germany 1-0. Sean Maloney scored the, the winning goal 1-0 European qualifier. So I think, I'm not suggesting that they should go and crash weddings prior yeah. to games, but it does seem to help. And it obviously says a lot about him that the players, I presume they didn't grumble, but, but you know, that they would... Just willingly pre- go. Well, I, you know, I, th- I presume they probably did grumble. If I'm being 100 percent honest, <laughs> but they would they would have done anything for him. Yeah, and I think that was the thing. I think they would have they would have knocked their pans out. You would always go that extra yard um, because he asked them to. And and why do you think they did that? So sorry to go back to leadership, but I think it's so important in in sports medicine. What was it about him? What do you think? Was it was he just kind to them? Did he respect them? Did he? speak to them as equals? What, what was it yeah. that, that got them to go that extra mile no, for him? I, I think all of the things you just said, I think they absolutely respected him. I mean, how could you not respect somebody who's won, who's lifted the World Cup? You know, that's what you're, that's what you're trying to achieve in the sport. And there's a guy who's spending his time taking you one-on-one, you know, to chat through how he thinks you can be a better footballer. It can't be any more inspirational for you than that, I'd have thought as a player. And certainly... He also was a very charismatic guy as well, which helped him because what he said, everybody, you know, everybody would do. Um, and sometimes there's a wee bit of a challenge in that environment because if you feel that you have an issue with a player perhaps being fit, but he wants the player to be fit in that type of environment, sometimes that can be a wee bit difficult because you can all be bought into so much success that you just do what one person says. And that's not how human factors work. She's still going to be able to, to work in an environment where you could say, can I challenge you? On that, I don't think this player's going to be ready for this game, but I do believe he'll be ready for the next one. And again, Rainer would be somebody that, you know, you wouldn't want to go and say to him, do you know, this guy's not ready and I'm sorry, but I feel I'm letting you down. But you were still able to do it. You wanted to be able to always go and tell him good news, but uh, he would give that environment where you could go and say, it's perhaps not as good news as we as we want it. And he'd accept that and he would always accept and respect your decision. So at no point did he ever say, do you know something? I'm going to play him anyway. So thanks for your input, but I'm going to go against your wishes. Uh, you might question you, and there's, I think that's a good sign in a manager as well. To say, can I just be clear? What, why is he not? Why is he not fit to play? And is there anything else we could or should be doing? Is there, are we missing an opportunity to do something to get this player fit? Um, and if you can then justify why that's the case, then yeah, absolutely fine. You're not being undermined. You're just being challenged, which is fine. That's that's the right thing to do. What's your, What's the worst moment in your job? 
Oh, man, it, it, it's a, it is the failure to qualify for any <laughs> tournament, which isn't uh, your fault, by the way. Uh, do you know? I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I don't believe it is. Uh, <laughs> but you take it a wee bit personally. Um, I think uh, it's so fresh still. The the failure to qualify for the playoffs for the World Cup um, is is still very difficult. Just the manner in which we had gone from the heights of. You know, Lee Griffiths scoring two phenomenal goals at Hamden, the best atmosphere I can remember at Hamden, um, to go to uh, Slovenia and not get the result there when we were, you know, we were leading is is just, it was, it, it, it's just horrible when you're in that environment, you're away from home, everybody, there's nothing that anybody can ever say in that situation. And I guess you're not entirely responsible for that, you would say, but but is that part of being a good team that everyone shares the highs yeah. and the lows, you just, you're all, yep. you're all part of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's a time and a place to have an input into how you might want to make that better, but there's nothing you can really say at that time. You know, there's there's not another game to come, therefore there's not a rebuilding process to, to be done in, in that dressing room at that moment. Um, there's still a journey to be had and, you know, everybody has to go home and everybody has to get packed up and, you know, that's a difficult place to and a time to be. But, you know, if you've got a second game to come, you've got another opportunity and everybody's down, then you start the rebuilding process as quickly as you possibly can because even though you might not have had the result then, you've got one other chance. You're part of that, um, you're part of that process of making sure that the players don't feel down for too long, you know, by, by trying to be part of a backroom staff that helps to bring them up and motivate them again. Okay, so it feels like we're approaching the end. I'm looking at the time here and I'm thinking, how am I going to get this down to 25, 30 minutes? But we'll get there. Um, anything I've not asked or anything else you'd like to raise that you think is important for our listeners? I think the only thing that I would probably try to get across is about indemnity. Because I think the, that that's more and more and more of an issue. Um, so having, for anybody who is going to have any involvement with athletes, you need to make sure that your, um, you know, your defence organisation covers you for that. Because that's becoming less and less easy to, to, to get, less easy to achieve. And that's changed again, um, you know, over the last few years that uh, certainly the organisation I'm with, the MDDS, don't indemnify against uh, a lot of things in, in sport. So you need to be very clear that you're covered for it. And if you're not with that organisation, you probably need to get it covered in, in some other capacity. Okay, so I always like to end these interviews with my own last question, which I ask everyone if that's okay. So, so if we could take you back in time to speak to your junior self, just starting out, just, just leaving medical school, what have you gained in all of your experience? And that can be either or both, um, your sports and your emergency medicine. What 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 have you learned? What have you gained that you would like to pass on to them starting out in their career? Uh, probably probably two things that I would say um, that are responsible for the things that have worried me because uh, you, you tend to worry about things that you don't get right. And that's about overcomplicating some of the diagnoses or some of the treatments that we make as opposed to keeping things very, very simple. We do have a tendency, to, or I certainly have a tendency to overcomplicate managements. So that, that overcomplexity, I think, uh, will result in difficulties for the patient, result in difficulties for yourself, and probably more so the communication aspect of, uh, you know, of, of how I communicate and how I used to communicate. Um, hopefully something that I do better, but 
Um, I'm also aware that I lose that ability when I'm under pressure. I don't communicate as well as I could do. I tend to focus on the problem rather than the person uh, in the emergency setting. And I think that's the that's the thing that, that annoys me most about emergency medicine. And any simple little tips on communication, any specifics that, that maybe people should focus on? Um, I wouldn't underestimate how your body language comes across to people and how that will influence their opinion on you. And it's very easy for a consultation to go downhill very quickly. If I could give an example, because it's a very recent example and I think it's probably relatively, um, it was an important thing for myself on a number of levels. So I called a, 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 a lady through into uh, from the waiting room, walked through with an ankle injury with her daughter, um, a couple of weeks back and I took her through it's a wee bit windy in our department to go into one of the rooms and it's always very there's always a competition to get patients into rooms because we're in rooms very very quickly so even though her name was on the screen moved into the room I was keen to get her into the room as quickly as I possibly could so I introduced her as I opened or myself to her as I opened the door to bring her through and then almost I didn't run away from her but I was a couple of steps ahead of her trying to get her into this room before somebody else came into it and one of the auxiliaries was aware as they walked as her and her daughter walked past they said to each other how rude is he he's just he's he's walked away from us and I've got a sore leg um, and we've and probably I, all done that well do you know the, the, the thing the thing that I a was really grateful for was the the, the nurse saying to me after I'd started the consultation and went out to uh, to, to, to organise some of the treatments for that patient, um, saying they weren't very happy when they walked past me. They made a comment that you were rude, um, which was great that that nurse felt able to relay that back to me. And she than knew to, that that wasn't a reflection of I, you because she would, knows you. Probably. Yeah, I would, I would hope so, yes. And I think, yeah, it, but it gave me an opportunity to go to the to the patient and say, do you know something, I actually wasn't aware that I was doing that and I was just trying to make sure I got you into the room. But that, that yeah, that was really rude. Sorry, sorry about that. And that so that communication error had started before I'd even got the patient into the room. So I thought I'd done all the right things. I'd introduced myself as I got through the door and yet still managed to make a, you know, not a mess of it, but, you know, potentially make a mess of it. So it's being aware of the simple things. But it's, it's how, 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 that, that's not a complicated thing, but I've already got a patient who's annoyed at me before I've even gone in. Well, how many times has that happened and we didn't have a staff member to tell us that that's what they thought, yeah. you know? So it's, yeah, yeah. I guess being aware so of those it's, things. It's just simple. That, that combines simplicity with, you know, poor communication. Um, okay, well, look, I can't thank you enough for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank um, you. Any final parting um, words of wisdom or... or <laughs> Sports. So I think what I'm getting mainly is sports medicine seems to have brought you a lot of joy. Yes. So if you're yeah. into sport, it might be an option for to, to try. Um, there's a lot of benefits probably from that, both, yeah. you know, um, which will, will impact on your emergency career and big up the wife. Yes. Oh, yeah. and, the, and the kids as well, because they're the ones that uh, maybe they're happy when I go away. I don't know. Maybe they have parties every <laughs> night. Bar, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no it's, uh, it, I'm very lucky in that respect because it is a bit of a pressure when you use annual leave in that way. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been Thanks absolutely brilliant. Cheers, man. So a huge thank you to Johnny Gordon for his time and thoughts on all things sports meds. And I think that was a a really enlightening conversation. I hope it's maybe inspired some of you to look into it a wee bit further if it's something you thought might interest you in your career. I think my main take-home points are sports medicine. The typical entry is via a master's or diploma in sports and exercise medicine or increasingly a dual accreditation through the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine. 
And remember, there are a number of other additional courses which would be of benefit, such as pitch side courses and human factors courses that would add skill. Number two, treat the patient and not the x-ray. So don't forget um, to take a good history and consider likely injury based on the mechanism before you go and look at the x-ray. Number three is just to remember to consider syndesmosis injuries and keep them on your radar when assessing ankles. Uh, Typically they occur with the ankle fixed and externally rotated and they're significant because they are often overlooked and can be associated with increased morbidity than simple ankle sprains and generally they require a bit more non-weight bearing initially and occasionally they need operative fixation and the squeeze test and Kleiger's test can help raise suspicion. And number four, leadership qualities. Some of the good things that we picked out from Johnny's experience with team leaders in sport are good communication with your team, help to build their confidence, emphasize that everyone is important within the team and inspire your team to be better by example. Don't forget you can access the show notes with some links to some of the stuff we've discussed and that's at mungos-ed.com where there's also lots of additional resources for your enjoyment. And since this podcast was recorded, we've just heard that Jonathan Hansen, who was our guest in episode 10 on concussion, has just been awarded the NHS Sports and Exercise Medicine role and is the first person in Scotland to do so. So many congratulations to him. Many thanks to Johnny Gordon for his time and many thanks to you for listening and take care.